0: Hi, I'm Rich Wynn,
1: and I'm Rebecca Nixon, and this is the PropTech, PropTech Growth Podcast. Podcast. Every
0: episode, we interview an expert in the PropTech startup space, gathering their advice and expertise to help you run a successful PropTech business.
1: I'm the portable PropTech CMO, and I help PropTech startups build and scale their commercial growth strategy.
0: I'm Rich from Rich Wynn Consultancy. I specialize in operations, sales and process, helping fintechs and PropTech companies to grow. So, Tim, obviously I know a little bit about you, but so you look like you've had a pretty long career. Does it look that bad this morning? Shiny light,
2: I think, that's all it is. And then I think getting to your career because I think, very relevant to what we're going to be discussing today, Tim. A very quick positive history. I trained as a land agent at Saracester with a Reading degree, and then I got a job as a land agent with Savills down in Wimborne, where I practised for about eight years, and then I set up the West Midlands office for Savills up here in Shropshire. I moved it into Telford in about 96, and then I left them in 1999. I then set up a portal. They hadn't really been heard of in those days, but we set up based originally on a for sale by owner, and then we widened it out, and we launched that called No Legwork down in Bristol. Unfortunately, we were a bit too early. We had to employ somebody to drive around all the estate agents in those days and collect floppy disks with their data on it because the internet wasn't quite established enough, takes us back a bit. The next generation, and probably you guys wouldn't actually understand that at all, but floppy disks were how we used to transfer data. And then I started selling houses up here in Shropshire originally with Lane Fox. And then when Lane Fox moved out, we established the Balfour's brand. And so I sold houses up here in Shropshire for 17 years. And then when I stopped that, things had changed and I really wondered whether I wanted to stay in the same industry or whether I wanted to do something different. Because if some of the fun had come out of it, be blunt about it, the days when one agreed a sale, I used to chuck this file in the corner of the office on the floor next to my desk, and within 28 days, you expected to have a letter from the typing pool of the solicitors saying, please, could you send us your invoice because we've exchanged contracts. And in fact, we used to have an office rule that if it hadn't exchanged in 28 days, it went back on the market, come hell or high water. Imagine that today. And so being a bit uncertain about it, I had a cost to copy moment with a convincing solicitor. I said, how can we make it better? i had been getting solicitors appointed, which I'm told helps and property information forms done. But to be honest, they'd often sat on my file or the solicitor's file. We hadn't been doing a lot with them. And I said, how can I help my clients with this information? And I almost wanted a, a box in the corner, a star in the corner of the advert saying partially prepared or started preparation to tell the buyers that we'd done some homework and we were serious about selling. Anyway, this conversation, one led to another. Uh, that was with Steve Foden, who's a director of mine now in PIP Limited. And then the next person that he introduced me to was David Sanderman, who runs Essential Information Group, known as EIG. And they host about two thirds of the online property auctions or residential property auctions in the country. So they service a lot of the agent sites and he is obviously hosting title packs day in day out and displaying them prior to the auction. So we thought that would be good for private treaty. So he's now a director as well of PIP limited with his IT director, David Leary. And so we're the four directors. And what we've done is we've developed private treaty front end for his back end, so that we can now offer to a state agent the backend serviceability of EIG, but for private treaty, so they can open a data room for every property and display any information they like. Alongside that, I was introduced to the home buying and selling group quite early on in their days, and so I'm a participant, I think we call ourselves that, and I chair the logbook group for them, and I sit in the property data trust frameworks group as well. So that's a quick pot history of how I'm sitting here today. I'm quite interested in the portal from back in the day. How did that come about? Because that's obviously quite early thinking for well, that sort of thing. I remember for various reasons, I was lying in my bath and I can remember where it was thinking, hmm, maybe I haven't got a job in the morning. What am I going to do? And I thought, what's new at the moment? Well, I thought this internet's coming. There was a lot of talk about it in the late nineties. Rebecca, this was just pre the boom. The boom we hadn't really started even there of dot coms and things. And so I thought, well, the internet, what's it going to be able to do? What is quite good it is pulling together disparate information. That was my quick summary. So I said, well, how's this going to help agency? And I thought it was going to pull together all the information for a buyer. So you don't have to register necessarily with all eight estate agents in a town. You can go and see all the properties in one place. So that's how I started doing it. And I thought, and I'll admit, I did expand the for sale by owner. So I thought, well, actually our original launch was owners think they want to be involved, but necessarily don't want to be more involved. And I wanted to give people the ability to be in control or seem to be in control. So you could put your own property on the market, but the whole way along the line, there was a tick bar. I want a photographer, press here. I want floor plans, press here. I want a for sale board, press here. And it was a cost for sale board would be erected at 20 quid. Press here, goes on your card or whatever. Down to a full service, write my details for me, et cetera, et cetera. But also I always had a full management, three grand sell my house for me or whatever it was, whether it's a percentage of the whole price. But on a fixed scale basis, so actually. I saw that it'd be the top 75% of the same people, agents up and down the country would be doing the same jobs because it would all start with valuations because whilst everyone thinks they know what the house is worth, they don't. So first thing you do is I want three valuations, but actually you would be paying and hear this, paying for those valuations in my best model, 50 quid ago or whatever they were, as opposed to the freebies that the industry dishes out today, trying to win the instruction. So yeah, it was really trying to change a little bit. The model of houses were sold, but then we merged that in through our funding into going to a wider portal to be able to list agents listings alongside to make it even more attractive for the buyers, obviously. And then we raised our millions in London and spent them, but we didn't heavily capitalize on that sort of thing and never had the capital generation to last the five, 10, 15 years we'd have needed to really get it into the income streams.
0: What did you learn from that? Because obviously every business you take learnings from it. I certainly
2: learned myself is there's no harm in thinking big because when these things do kick off, they're great. That team, we still occasionally meet today. Do you know what I mean? Certainly if any of the team bumped into each other, they'd go straight over to each other. We had a lot of fun doing it. And yes, we failed, but kindly one or two people said the Americans will always back someone second time around, not necessarily first time around because you learn so much from it. So I think it's clear strategy. The one I slightly struggle with these days is everyone says, make sure you get the volume in the business before you worry about the incomes. But I guess I'm slightly old-fashioned in that the incomes do actually support the business. There's that struggle with this sort of modern scale up and then worry about it. A philosophy of today's world on the internet. But yeah, get a basic business that works and a model that works and then scale is and the joy of technology that scales very quickly if you get it right. So I think one of the hardest things for a prop a tech is getting you Customers, and how's the take up been? I think the response has been hugely supportive by all agents from nationals to, to one man bands. And we've got one or two very kind people who support our philosophy very strongly. But initially, what we offered was what we refer to as a vanilla data. Room. We did the software, we provided a blank room into which you could put your information, or the seller, the agent, or the solicitor. And the honest answer is that was too big a jump people too many buttons to press and the whole concept of how it works the agent was too big and so the take up wasn't as we'd hoped so we've actually gone back to the drawing board now and said okay everyone likes the theory and they know it's coming and these upfront packs and whatever it's all going to happen but we don't have to do it today let's do it tomorrow and we've had a very strong market for agents they've obviously just been chasing instructions full stop in fact i had some of the other say Oh, I have so busy because I'm getting so many more instructions. So I mentioned these pitches, but I haven't had time to get around to opening them yet. You can't win sometimes. But now what we're offering is we're saying to agents that we will offer the seller to fund the searches ourselves at the outset. So we'll contact the seller by email and just say, we do offer these searches. If you like it now, as long as you're happy to pay on success or instruct your estate agent to collect from the buyer on success, we will order your searches now. So if they run out of time, expire, or the property is withdrawn. That's our hard luck, but on success, we ask for payment. That's proving a much more popular. So on the back of that, we're now looking at data reports and also title reports so that we can put a certain amount of information in there. And we do send them the sellers links to property information forms and that sort of thing. So a seller, when they appoint an agent, it all goes quiet. You know, they've had three or four agents contacting them, chasing their business. They appoint somebody. And it goes quiet now, not for very long, hopefully because people get the properties on the market pretty quickly, but sellers often want to be doing something in that period and if they can start doing their legal forms, which they're going to have to do at some stage, best to get on with it really. So there is a link that the agent can put on their population of viewings or whatever I might just add in here that live by the sword, die by the sword. I did sell a house a couple of years ago and I'd been a little bit carefree in the fact that I'd committed myself. I'd exchanged contracts on my purchase and not to be recommended. And I had three months to launch market and exchange and complete my property. And I said to my wife, it might be slightly hairy, but we'd give it a go. And I'm pleased to say I got everything in my pit ready, property information forms, searches. I didn't get a survey done. And when I agreed a sale with the buyer, I knew that they had seen all the information on the pit bull. Because it does tell the agent who's looking at it and what they've downloaded and things, and uh, we agreed a two week exchange. They took a week's holiday in the States. They appointed a solicitor that they hadn't got appointed beforehand. She did manage to have three days off the following week and we missed the exchange. We didn't achieve it in two weeks, but we did do it in two weeks and a day. So we like to think that's a good start to the whole process.
0: Yeah, definitely. And obviously there's four of you with a lot of experience and business knowledge. We often ask the question, is it better to start a company with a co-founder or co-founders rather than do it yourself in your experience? that's
2: My philosophy is a little bit of something that works is always better than a big chunk of something that's small. It's funny when you speak to people who've got a business idea, if you ever asked, say, well, can I speak to you about an idea? People think you're going to try and sell them some dodgy sign-up marketing. I'm a great believer in the more people you talk to about your idea. It could get borrowed by somebody else, but it gets honed. The more people you discuss the idea with, the way it works with, the more people know about it, but also your business model is always slightly tweaking. The idea that you start on day one and you have your business model and that's set in concrete. You've got to be flexible every day. You're looking at ways you can tweak it, change it. And if you're writing a business plan out to somebody, it's different for every person you send it to. Everyone gets rewritten. I think not being stuck in stone is important, but no, I'm a great believer in a team achieves a lot more than an individual.
1: We've touched on the fact that your product is aimed at agents. Is that given that you have buyers and sellers also using the portal? Is it the agent that provides you with your income stream for the product?
2: I think we've targeted agents because we thought we have two choices. One is we market to everybody who's a house owner or who might be selling their house next year. Or if we can market to 16,000 estate agents, it's a much smaller marketplace to sell to. And mm-hmm. if one agent signs up, then you've got quite a lot of people coming through regularly. So that is why we focused on the estate agent. And I think also it's something I'm seem to be writing something about. My concern at the moment is buyers and sellers go into this process without really understanding it and with no control. And I'm old fashioned enough to say rightly the agent is in control of the whole thing. He's the conductor of the orchestra and therefore I think to get our product in accepted and used by agents has got to be right for us. Having said that, this whole conveyance process and is it broken or not? How are we going to improve it? And there are a lot of very clever minds writing regularly in the daily updates and that sort of thing about this process. And I guess the way mine's starting to go is agents blame solicitors, blame state agents. It's quite a simple thing. And neither quite understand each other's business or, or not enough people do. But actually, I had a comment the other day that saying, could a consumer ask their solicitor to use such and such a system? So say that someone was using a pitfall, could they ask their solicitor to use it? So of course they can, they're the client. They're paying this person money to do a job for them. So there's two problems in just that state. They're just paying them a bit of money. In other words, the fees have got pushed down and down. And I guess I represent agents more, but solicitors fees have got down and down and down and down. And therefore I think there's a percentage of the marketplace that would much prefer to pay a little bit more and get a proper service. And that's what they expect. Yes, there's a top five, or 10% who are used to instructing lawyers to do jobs for them and that sort of thing. And they will instruct a solicitor. That's what it used to be called. Whereas nowadays it seems to be people ask a solicitor that if they have possibly got time, could they possibly help them out on this job when it suits them sort of thing. And I think that balance is wrong. And that's maybe where the whole conveyance process is grinding down because maybe they're not paid enough to do the job they're doing, but it's not an instruction. No one's instructing them to act on their behalf. They're asking if they could possibly do a job for them when it fits in. And that's the balance we've got to get, right? I think we've got to get the power back in the consumer. And so the whole consumer needs to understand a little bit more about the process. It's got to be simpler.
1: I think with what we're seeing in PropTech now is we're seeing a real push towards transparency on the consumer side of things because the frustration and confusion on the consumer side is I'm paying for this and it takes so long. If you can see what's happening and when it's happening. Then you don't mind paying it's someone to do a good job. Exactly. And my
2: pet's hate is uh, some of these progress bars because they <laughs> almost don't tell you a thing. Yes, okay. you can see it's vaguely going up, oh, they're random aggressions and you might get to four in a week and then it still takes six months to get to the end. I'm afraid I don't think those are answering the question, but it's interesting what you said there, Rebecca, is you said transparency. And I guess the bit that's made me think about empowering the consumer more, maybe they are the, the hub that have got to be empowered to instruct people and things is a car. We use the car analogy a lot. I don't know whether either of you two bought a, a secondhand car recently, but I can just about bet my mortgage on it that you would not have parted with a penny before you checked out the paperwork and knew exactly what you were buying. Now, there is a difference between the car market and the house market in that the car market is possibly only your second highest expensive asset that you buy. Whereas the house is the most expensive asset. And the big difference is, let's face it, there are some cars that you could sell and buy a house with nowadays, but they are still generally controlled by the consumer, car market, whereas the house market is completely different in that you just go along and like the look of a house and think you know what it's worth because the agent's asking some money for it and you agree a deal. You pick just the price, be blunt about it, and then the rest is just taken away from you into this black hole called conveyancing and then you're told six months down the line, pay here, and this is what you own or you don't own, it's all of apart. And, and that's, I think is a massive mismatch area. So what we should be doing is we should be empowering the consumers to be able to know what they're buying. They should be asking more questions and they should know more information at the point of agreeing a sale. I'm not saying everything. Am I expecting everyone to sit down and read the title papers and everything else? No, but they should know. There are restrictive covenants on this property. It should be summarized out. It is private drainage or it is whatever. Because to some people, not being on main drains is a no-no. And much better to get that out there at the beginning. Because however much they like the house, if they end up going to see the solicitors in 16 weeks' time or 23 weeks' time, whatever it is, here's your report on title, sign, and then exchange, they're never going to be happy in that house because it's got the wrong drainage. And I really believe we shouldn't be running an industry that sells the wrong thing to the wrong people. I don't think it helps anyone. And also, warts and all, you can get away with sheer murder when someone's falling in love. But once they've agreed a deal, then it's always downhill from there. And so that's where I'm working on at the moment. There are two different markets there, but why are they so different? One works really well, the car sales market. Nobody seems to complain because they know it's their liability. Now, yes, in a house, you get the solicitor to come and it's on your behalf, but are they really? And too many times I read the comments after some of these articles that are written, Peter Ambrose, they like, And people say, oh, but the solicitor's always acting in the client's best interest. I don't think that is always the case, I'm afraid.
1: When I speak to people who are in the process of buying a house, they don't feel that the solicitor is acting on their behalf. They feel that the solicitor has a checklist to get through as quickly as possible so that they can do as many deals as possible. So that their boss feels that they are getting their money's worth. This seems to be a universal issue. The lack of transparency and the lack of customer centricity. That's the
2: point I'm trying to get to. You actually mentioned that you felt they were trying to race through and get as many deals done as possible. That's almost encouraging because it instead gave you the feeling they're trying to get through them. Whereas a lot of the comments I hear is they've got 50 cases on their desk at any one time. If your file's at the bottom of that 50 caseload, it doesn't make it to the top very often. And they'll ask one question and then others overtake it. So it's just the amount they have to have open at one time to try and yeah. earn their fees, as you say, you worded it well then, non-customer focused. Or well,
1: customer centricity.
2: Customer centricity. There's the word for the morning, I think. I'm all for supporting that. People feel they can't speak to their solicitor because they phone it up. It's going to cost them another 50 quid or whatever. And that sort of thing, that whole, I think relationship, and that instruction, as I always used to call it, of mm. instructing a solicitor is wrong at the moment. So who should take the lead on this then with regards to the education? Phil Spencer, surely Phil Spencer or Home Owners Alliance or somebody like that. Those are the guys who are trying to promote buyer and the consumer education, I think. So that was a slightly glib comment, but those are the sort of people I think who are trying to champion the consumer amongst it. Because I think for cost effectiveness, people like ourselves, I've already said here. We're focusing to the agent because it's a lot not cheaper to market to 16,000 people than it is to all the homeowners in the country who might possibly be selling next year, however good the algorithms are now at telling us who's going to sell which yes, nobody actually knows who's going to wake up next year and decide they're going to sell. So I think that's my take on it. That's why we're focused on agents and not the consumer. Or is it a government thing to come in and help? Is that where the government should be coming and helping? There are certain bits in the ministry of Health through the home buying and selling group, buyer's guides and seller's guides and that sort of thing. And it's just that general education and it needs a bit of a jolt, I think, to rebalance things. The days when I was wondering, should it be the agent orchestrating it? The agents should know good solicitors that they can recommend. But I was with an agent who I didn't know on Friday and within seconds, he was saying, I don't recommend any conveyancer now because he doesn't have faith in anybody. And that's a pretty poor reflection. When I sold my house, the buyers said to me, who should I put and knowing I had been an agent on the patch for 17 years beforehand. So they said to me, who do I go to act on for me? And I slightly struggled to know who to put forward because I wanted it done in two weeks. And did I know somebody who would definitely work on that time test? So we did find someone great. The names didn't jump out at you to act in that sort of, okay. One thing I think the industry haven't stepped back and said is we're all looking at improving things, speeding up conveyance. Those words are everywhere. That phrase is everywhere, but how fast do we want to make it? And I think there's a lot of decisions. There must be times, prop tech world where we're looking to how quickly do we want to auction? Does it instantaneous? exchanges on the fall of the gavel bank? Is that where we should be? Should we be getting contracts ready for everything and just doing it, even if it's agreed privately? Are you ready? Yes. I don't think so. I think people do need that. I always say Esther Anson cooling up period or whatever. I think she brought that in, didn't she? I think two weeks is about right. And I think as an industry, we should have almost that debate saying what is right for houses to sell? What should we be aiming at? Should we be aiming at two hours, two weeks, two months? And I think if everyone could exchange, when I started 20 years ago, selling houses, 25 years ago, it was 28 days to exchange standardly 28 days to complete thereafterwards. That was the norm, but it always happened on a Friday. So it wasn't quite 28 days. So, I think the target should be two weeks to exchange, then six, eight weeks to mm-hmm. People like that time sometimes to pack their bags, to have their goodbye parties banned and start getting the things they want to put in the new house and that sort of thing. So I'm not saying everything's got to be a rush. And I believe I did hear something in the mortgage world that when they were looking to digitize the mortgage world, they were given the challenge mm-hmm. that a buyer should be able to get a mortgage instantaneously if they wanted to almost. But certainly within that two week period, they could be quicker. But the two-week period is the ideal.
1: I think that's really interesting because I like this shift away from going, it should be faster. It should be easier. It should be more streamlined. Two weeks. It should be completed in two weeks. Let's work back from there and see what needs to happen in order for us to meet that target as an industry. So I think that's a very interesting point that you've made there. I would really like to see people have a vision, whether it's two weeks or whatever the time frame is, to have a vision of how it should work. And we all come together and work together to try and make that happen? But I'm also interested, are you using that as your value proposition to agents? Because given that we're trying to make things more customer-centric, there's a level of motivation for them to make things more customer-centric because their customers will be happier. And therefore, that's a strong selling point for them to get on board with the product. But the reality offer comes down to the bottom line. They can turn deals around in two weeks. And that's better for their cash flow, it's better for them as a business. And I'm wondering if you're using those sorts of vision statements as selling points or if you have a different strategy for selling it to agents.
2: The difficulty is see the stats coming through quickly enough is one problem. And the other thing is people always throw the chain forward. And so part of my philosophy is work for a big section of the market. I'm afraid if it doesn't work for a couple of percent, but these things will generally be better. And therefore, I think a lot of people, when they're setting up new businesses and things, have to wait until they got it right for a hundred percent of the marketplace, work for 50% of the marketplace to start with. Certainly in the housing industry, that's huge. And don't get lost in servicing the last percent if necessary.
1: Really important just to note here for our listeners, because one of the issues I find with a lot of the prop tech startups I work with and speak to is they go for funding. And they have their investor pitch, which obviously is going to include a term total addressable market. And they go, for example, Tim, you might go, this product is feasibly for every agent in the UK. But as you say, it's not immediately going to be feasible for every agent in the UK, and it may only ever be feasible for 85% of patients in the UK. But for the ones that it is definitely applicable to now as the product stands or in six months while we This feature and that feature we have what i would call a market sizing exercise where you find out who are the people who are actually the ones that are your your true market that you are addressing today and how is that going to be profitable for you as a business so that you can grow and expand your vision to include larger categories within that
2: absolutely and we've broken the market down and whilst a number of nationals looking at us and watching us or big corporate brand names those who can turn it on quicker are the okay. independents. And the one man bands in a state agency probably aren't really the leaders. And so you might get one or two, but all we're finding is the regionals. It's those with three to six or 10 offices that are pushing forward, have got to make their mark. And mm-hmm. one guy could give that a go. And I got to put that into my teams. Every big market breaks down into smaller and smaller sections. And you've got to find out that works for you. I think
0: that's exactly it. It is what works for you. I think we saw the stat. Each agent or agency has about 13 to 14 bits of prop tech that they use, which is relevant to their job. With regards to adoption, obviously taking another one on, they really have to see the benefit of it. I think with regards to disruption with the market, I don't think in prop tech that's the thing anymore. I think the way to get things done is through integration. And then that also narrows down the having to log into 13, 14 different systems every
2: day. But I think 100% that's the way forward. We've taken that view, built our API very early on. And actually we, when we've been developing our dipvol, we've been very focused in not doing periphery. People say, no, have you got an email communication system or whatever? No, others do that. We just haven't gone off our brief of do our little bit. We provide data rips. Yes, they all communicate. They send you an email when there's a new document and all the sort of things you want PropTech to do. We're not doing the side bits. We're not doing a diary with, because others do that and do it better. So the first thing we did is we built the API. So we see our progress through that we've got to get enough agents using it that it's working. And then you talk to the CRMs and they just say, where is our customer demand? They're totally driven by customer demand. So it is a bit of a catch 22 that you've got to have enough people using it before it can go by an API. But that's where we have just brought out literally in the last few days, our Reapit app. So that's going to be exciting as we launch that coming. And just going
0: back to it, the thoughts I had, obviously the agent and conveyance gap, whatever you want to call it, between the two. Why doesn't somebody, anybody from the agency
2: industry create their own solicitor specifically to do that? You're really testing my market knowledge and you've found a gap. There used to be some sort of legal difficulties for estate agents in England anyway, or maybe I think probably England and Wales, to own a, a conveyancing practice or a legal practice alongside their agency. And I don't quite understand the ramifications of that. In Scotland, I think they tend to do more. Now that there are conveyancing rather than legal executives and things, I think that is changing. And certainly, I know a number of agents who've been appointing conveyancers to work for them. Obviously, chains is one issue and it's also the structure of the pay at the end in that are you going to get it all together and ready before the sale so somewhere it needs some commitment from the seller to be ready funding things is generally not a problem there is money but what does need to be done is to get more homework done up front so wow. that it comes out. Now, exactly how that's all funded and costed. Generally, I think sellers better pay at the end, but that just means there's gotta be a bit more on there to cover those that they don't get to the end or whatever, it's not rocket science. My belief is, it, if you can get a process working, you can fund it somehow. There's always someone who'll lend in the middle if necessary. But I think that part of the problem is nobody wants to start doing anything until a sales agreed because yeah. they're worried about spending other people's money up front and let's face it, a lot of convincing solicitors wait to even instruct searches. Now, is this in their client's interest? They will not instruct searches until they've got the mortgage offer through, even though the client's desperate to keep things going. Now, fine, but why take that decision without consulting the client? If they rang up their client and say, look, searches are going to cost you 250 quid if it's personals or 460 quid if it's normal or whatever. Do you want to take that risk now or do you want to wait till your mortgage arrives? Why but don't they ask them that? They just take that decision on their own. And that's where I start to struggle with the process because they say Black or white, you know, the solicitor always acts in the best interest. But I don't think that taking that decision for a client isn't necessarily the best interest. I think there's a lack of respect coming back to that solicitor, conveyancer, client.
1: To relate that back to something you said earlier, you talked about the progress line. And actually, there's almost a mindset of a progress line or a checklist. Mm. But actually, what you're talking about is a workflow. It's a diagram with multiple branches where decisions are made at different points. And if we can make as many of those decisions clearly and transparently at the very beginning of the process, then there's so much less to do as you get further down to the end. You want to get people thinking about it in that way, don't you?
2: Interesting on the property data trust framework group. I remember almost exactly the same conversation, maybe two years ago in the middle of lockdown or something. People saying, why is it linear? Why don't Hmm. we get all the decisions taken here at the beginning? And then they flow through. And actually in all of this... I'm not interested in what's been done. I want to know what's left outstanding. When I choose to chase sales, forget what's been done. What's outstanding, what is the line on what other information is required before we can get on an exchanges. That's the focus. The focus is what's left to be done. Where's it coming from? When's it going to be available? Not, oh, we've done this and this. So I think that's another mindset change in what's outstanding rather than what's been done. Maybe that's my sheet of these timelines then. Because that only tells you what's been done. It doesn't tell you what's outstanding. And I'm afraid we used to rent out a room upstairs to a solicitor's and I could hear the reception. And how many times is it reported that we're awaiting searches? Have they actually asked for the searches yet? There's a lot of blame in the whole process. And yes, they are awaiting them, but only because they haven't asked for them yet. And it's that sort of thing it is not always in everyone's best interest. And so, yeah, I'm a great believer in tell everyone about it, particularly if you haven't done anything. But let's focus on what more is needed, not what's been done. With regards to growing a, a
0: prop tech company, either obviously from your own experience or for other people who are either starting out or are one or two years into the process, what advice would you give them as to what they should or shouldn't be doing or what they should or shouldn't be looking
2: for? I'm not quite sure how flippant I should be here. Get a day job, <laughs> number one. <laughs> probably the right answer. What should they be looking for to grow it? I think it's a question of clarify your message and your model. That's probably coming from Rebecca rather than myself. Be really clear what it is. Mentors, great. to Speak to people in the industry, speak to some of those with gray hair as to what they did, what they're doing. Sorry, that's probably very ageist off but I think speak to those with experience in the industry, particularly if you're new to the industry. It's a lot of people go through the pain Rebecca's just been through in buying a property and then start a prop tech because they've met problems. Now, I think the industry reaction is, oh, but they don't know the industry. They can't get it. I think it's quite helpful because you're getting non-industry biased people coming in and trying to address it, but they've got to get to know the industry and how the industry works and property works in strange ways. Rightly or wrongly, if you are a non-industry person gets some industry names around you to help you because names help give weight and open doors. An example is the uh, residential logbook association when we were establishing that, which is trying to set a framework for all logbooks to operate to in the future. There was four competitors knocking on doors, trying to speak to people. And it was quite difficult to open Land Registry Law Society type doors as a little startup. Come together helps to be assisted by the ministry or put together by the ministry almost we set up the rlba and then suddenly you can have those conversations and that was a huge forward for that business yeah i think it's talk about it get people alongside get anyone to help you wherever you can is probably the message in that and probably if you go down the route of funding which rebecca was mentioning earlier on that sort of thing if in doubt go for twice three times four times the amount you ever everything you need because you will use it
1: good to
2: that's absolutely brilliant to learn a lot from
0: that as we do with everyone really good to have you on yeah keep doing what you're doing thank you again
2: thank you nice. both very much and thank you i hope your listeners found it helpful and take can always contact me if i did raise anything that pricked their interest amazing thank love you very much cheers love it. thanks guys
0: thanks for joining us on the prop tech growth podcast to learn more you can find us on linkedin or email proptechpodcast podcast at my see you next time